This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning. You're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go beyond the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Philip C. On today's show, I speak to Greg Poling, Senior Fellow and Director at the Southeast Asia Program and Asian Maritime Transparency Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies to reflect on the extent of deterioration of U.S.-Sino relations in 2023 and whether we expect the tensions between both superpowers to de-escalate this year. Good morning, Greg. Would it be fair to say that 2023 was the year that we witnessed the biggest deterioration in relations between the United States and China? It's kind of hard to judge this year, but I would say that certainly we saw the acceleration of a trend that has been underway for at least the last decade and obviously accelerated under uh, the Trump administration, where across both economic and security matters, we've seen a steady deterioration of the Sino-U.S. relationship. Um I also, I mean, obviously COVID was a an accelerant on that, both because I think of, of the hypersensitivity we saw from Beijing, not just toward the U.S., but toward any international criticism, and the insularity um, as China went into zero COVID and became less and less kind of interested in what the outside world thought. It allowed the relationship to free fall for several years, and we're still trying to find new stability as we come out of that. Let's get back to the root cause. You say that, you know, things took a turn for the worse about a decade ago. What was the trigger point a decade ago? The easiest answer is Xi Jinping. So late 2012 to early 2013, um, Xi's elevation from uh, vice president, he was vice president during the Scarborough Shoal standoff with the Philippines, to his emergence as party leader and then his China dream speech um, in mid-2013, including his decision to place uh, China's rise as a maritime power and the reclaiming of lost territories at the heart of what he called the revitalization of the Chinese nation. That kicked off now more than a decade of steadily escalating tensions, not just with the United States, but with Japan, the Philippines, Vietnam, South Korea, Australia, many European states. This has had a very long tail. And in large part, I think it's it's not because she fundamentally changed the direction of China, but that she has had a much higher risk tolerance than his predecessors have mm-hmm. and has been far less interested in accommodating the concerns of, of outside states. And then you get a Donald Trump elected in the United States, and that just pours gasoline on the fire. The United States kind of met a more belligerent China with its own um, more confrontational policy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So belligerence meets belligerence fundamentally. So you have Donald Trump, then you have the COVID pandemic, which definitely exacerbated the issue. And in 2023, there were so many incidences, right, that actually just made the situation much worse. You had the spy balloon, you had former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi come and visit Taiwan. At what point did you think, wow, this is going to be a terrible year for U.S.-China relations? When did that whole thing spark, you know? Accept- yeah, you know, so I I was in Asia during the spy balloon incident, um, 2022, and then the um, the return of uh, Speaker McCarthy uh, in 2023. And it was clear that people were getting worried um, 
but I don't think that was the fundamental shift. I, if I have to point to one thing, it may be the increasing tensions with the Philippines around second Thomas, the, the level of kind of intentional negligence we've seen from Chinese vessels willing to ram and use water cannons and, and laser. But, but that's just the stuff in the press, you know, on the U.S. side, the stuff that's worried me the most over the last year has been the increasingly frequent unsafe air-to-air intercepts, where if we all remember the 2001 EP3 incident, which a Chinese jet clipped the U.S. Uh, surveillance aircraft and, and caused a weeks-long international crisis, that felt like it could have happened at any day over the last year. And so when we finally had uh, Xi and Biden meet on the sidelines of APEC. It's true that not a lot came out of that. But one thing that did come out, the one thing, is that at least for the first um, couple of months since the meeting, Chinese aircraft have dialed back the unsafe intercepts of foreign aircraft over the East and South China Seas. And that means that we're less likely to accidentally stumble into a crisis. Yeah, so it helps actually you know, facilitate some de-escalation of tensions. And I wonder, right, for 2023, one would argue that it was a tale of two halves. The first half where tensions were really ratcheted up. But in the second half of the year, you actually saw some effort, some diplomatic effort, right, between both sides. I think it's true that by by the second half of 2023, China began to seek more stability, at least on the economic front. We saw invitations to the U.S. Treasury Secretary, Commerce Secretary. Um, there was the effort by the Secretary of State to visit that was derailed by the spy balloon. Uh, and, and similar, we had Chinese officials coming to Washington for the first time in several years to talk economics. The military relationship really lagged. There was, you know, if, if you remember the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore in June, uh, yeah. Secretary of Defense uh, Austin made his entire speech about the need to reestablish mill-to-mill communication. And then his Chinese counterpart, Li Shangfu, took the stage afterwards and said, no, we're not interested. Of course, Li Shangfu was then fired, um, as have a whole lot of senior Chinese officials this year in mysterious circumstances. So it, it really wasn't until APEC that we saw any openness on the military to military side to de-escalate. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not even the tale of, of two halves to me. It's kind of the tale of a final 15 percent or something. Yeah, I think so. I think it's like 10 months and last two months, I think we saw some de-escalation. It's very interesting, right? I We always think that perhaps it's the economic ties and relationship that continue to be pretty strong that perhaps actually drove the importance to, you know, just find some level, right, in terms of diplomatic relations between both countries. You know, Xi Jinping is not, famously not an economist, doesn't buy into the... Um, the prevailing trade orthodoxy that has um, driven closer U.S.-China trade ties since Deng Xiaoping. But he doesn't want to completely upset the economic relationship. And so recognizing that maintaining stable economic relations provides ballast and stability, I think that has convinced him to at least seek to dial back the tensions. The fact that China is facing such severe economic headwinds right now um, and that he's had to deal with bureaucratic instability as he's fired and hired new senior officials throughout the year. All of that probably has convinced him that, um, at least for now, he needs to stabilize the economic relationship with the U.S. 
And what I think Washington made clear over the course of the year is that the economic relationship doesn't exist in a bubble. We need to stabilize the overall relationship in order mm -hmm. for that to happen. You made a point that, you know, there was a huge amount of management reshuffle, a lot of changes in China's leadership, right? In your view, do we have a get do we have a sense of what drove that change in leadership? Do we know why these leaders were reshuffled and replaced? I'm not sure that anybody outside of the inner halls of power in Beijing will know for sure for years. In the case of Li Shangfu and, and other senior military leadership that was shuffled this year, it seems to be a result of corruption or efforts to combat corruption within the PLA. When it comes to the foreign minister, nobody's entirely sure. Um, in a sense, I think maybe it, the, the reasons for each uh, personnel change might be less important than what it tells us about the centralization and idiosyncratic decision making of Xi Jinping's third term, right? As, as one man increasingly holds all the levers of power, decision-making becomes less and less transparent and it becomes more and more reflexive, more and more reactive. So this, the, the personal decision-making we see in China seems to me somewhat a reflection of the kind of poor decision making we've seen from Beijing externally for the last several years because only one man can make any important decisions. We are heading into some messages and when we come back, we continue our discussion with Greg Poling from the Center for Strategic and International Studies on U.S.-Sino relations. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Today on the show, Greg Poling from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, as we earlier discussed how 2023 has been a challenging year in terms of relationship between the United States and China. Now, Greg, we cast our eyes on the future, or actually the present, 2024. And of course, I want to get your perspective on how China will react following the win by William Lai Ching-te from the Democratic Progressive Party in Taiwan's just recently concluded presidential elections. We will see a lot of effort by, uh, I think, both the DPP leadership and William Lai, as well as the U.S., to manage the messaging with Beijing, um, not give China any excuse to overreact more than is absolutely necessary, meaning you won't, you know, I, I think, and of course, I'm not sitting in Taipei and I'm not a DPP official, but one assumes looking at what William Lai said on the campaign trail that he'll be very careful about his messaging, at least through the inauguration in May, to not give China an excuse. Um, and the U.S. will similarly make every effort, as we saw President Biden do when he met with Xi at APEC, to reiterate the stability of U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. But we've got limited leverage here. Um, China, China's state media has spent the last several years painting the DPP in general as kind of troublemaking pro-independence lawmakers and William Lai in particular as an avatar of that troublemaking, you know, destabilizing pro-independence. Same thing they did to Tsai before she came to power, even though Tsai as president for a decade never promoted independence. That was the caricature that was painted of her in the Global Times and People's Daily. And so the leadership had to had to respond to that. Now I think that China's leadership ha has to treat William Lai as the cartoon character they've painted him as domestically. So they will punish Taiwan for electing him. Um, whether that is just a few missile 
launches around the island, whether that's a temporary increase in in economic coercion, we don't know. Um, hopefully, it will be relatively short lived and will reach some new status quo by the middle of the year. I think that's the, the hope and expectations, right, that we hope to see a repeat of the situation and saying one that actually the worst that we'll see are just some caricatures, kind of insinuation and insults on them and some test runs and trial runs, but nothing more than that. That's the hope and expectation, right? Is it likely that China could be provoked without being provoked? Hmm. Well, yes, it is. This is one of the key factors behind reestablishing US, normal U.S.-China communication, because as much as China will be watching what Taipei says, China will also be watching what, what Washington says and multiple stakeholders in, in Washington. And, you know, Washington's a messy place. And sometimes members of Congress or different parts of the government say things that don't represent official policy. And so having having regular high level U.S.-China communication, I think, helps discipline that messaging helps Beijing not overreact to things that come out of, of the U S and I mean, to bring this back to the earlier point about COVID, we saw this getting worse and worse in 2020, 2021, even into 2022 where um, Chinese state media was leaping at things that individual members of the Congress or the media in the U S said and treating it as if it were the president himself and Washington saying it, because there was no senior U.S.-China communication. So they didn't have any other way to judge U.S. policy. We need to avoid that kind of, you know, through the looking glass interpretation of U.S. policy over the next six months. I wonder out loud, right? Because when I hear you, it seems like there's been some effort to lay some background infrastructure to build some communication channels between both sides, right? At least to ensure that we don't, uh, we maintain status quo. I wonder if, President Trump 2.0 comes into power, whether that whole communication infrastructure will be dismantled then? It's possible. Well, these these effects are hard to, to uh, estimate because on the one hand, a, a Trump 2.0 likely would be more um, transactional, more idiosyncratic, less predictable. Um, and so any beer, even if, if all the bureaucratic uh, guardrails and and structures for communication remain in place, there's no guarantee that he'd use them. So that's that's problem one. Um, problem two is uh, Beijing may well interpret a potential Trump victory as a net positive. I mean, even though they don't, certainly China did not care for the economic decision making of the Trump administration. The one thing that they did appreciate was that Trump didn't care very much for allies and partners and certainly didn't care very much for Taiwan. Um, And so I expect that part of China's calibration of its Taiwan policy over the next six months will involve looking at the horse race polls in the U.S. presidential election and trying to gauge whether or not they're better off waiting until next January for a potential Trump too, or just dealing with Biden as he is. Um, Again, that's that. It's kind of hard to say if if individual senior Chinese leaders look at some horse race poll in the state of Michigan in the U.S. Are they going to overinterpret that and assume the election is going to go some way and then base policy on it? I hope not, but it's it's hard to say. Yeah, and so if you made an interesting point, right, with uh, President Trump 2.0, he may not care so much about what might happen with allies uh, in the region, right? Whereas I think President Biden has spent a lot of time building coalitions, right? Be it the Quad, AUKUS, you know, deeper relations with the Philippines and Japan. Do you expect these allies to actually 
create tension. I mean, we've seen some tensions in South China Sea already between the Philippines and China. Do you think the allies itself could be the ones that could actually create this escalation of tension? I think there's going to be tension directed at U.S. allies. I don't think that U.S. allies and partners, for the most part, are the ones creating it. Um, Take the Philippines. It is not the Philippines' fault that China decides that the Philippines can't enjoy the resources of its own exclusive economic zone. Um, It's not, you know, the Philippines' fault that China wants to ram its vessels and use high-pressure water cannons and lasers. You You don't blame the victim for, you know, being bullied. The only thing that's changed in China-Philippine ties is that since the Marcos administration took power, the Philippines has begun to speak up, has talked about what it's dealing with. But these aren't new. China's been engaged in this exact same monthly pattern pattern of harassment uh, since at least early 2022. And, and, And frankly, if any other Southeast Asian state faced the level of pressure that the Philippines did, they would behave the exact same way. You know, Malaysia faces daily harassment around the Cassowary field and around Luconia, but it's not nearly at the level that the Philippines does. And yet the Malaysian government over four administrations now, I think, has made clear that they're not going to change their goals around Luconia and Cassowary. It's unreasonable to expect the Philippines to back down simply because it's the one getting the most pressure from Beijing. Interesting, because the perspective always is that and this is the mindset of, you know, perhaps the Asian listener is that China is kind of looking more at its own self-interest. It's it's quite insular. It doesn't provoke West. And I guess the nature of my questioning is always that China is the one that gets provoked. But you, I think, twist it and say, actually, it's the other way around where China also is actually capable in provoking many of its allies as well, right? China You know, every year I go to the Shangri-La Dialogue and every year a a Chinese official makes the exact same line. He says, you know, unlike other countries in the region, he just kind of waves out to the audience, take whichever one you want. China has never invaded another neighbor and never fought a war of aggression. And I'm always on the WhatsApp group with all the Indians and the Vietnamese and the Filipinos, all of whom, you know, begin sending emojis and rolling eyes. Because, of course, China has fought border wars with the Indians uh, twice and, and most recently, you know, the duel that killed dozens of, of Indians on the border in 2020. Uh, China has fought, has invaded Vietnam in 79, has been the one that's provoked tensions and violence in the South China Sea in 74 and 88 and 2012, and most recently over the last several years. Mm-hmm. Um, China is not unique in the international system. It has pursued its own interests in sometimes aggressive ways, like all big states have, and pretending that it's some fairy tale insular country that's always been the same size it is today doesn't help us. Let's be realistic. There's there's a reason that China is the size it is today, and it was mostly through colonial expansion and imperialism. What do you look forward to in 2024? Like, are there key engagements and dialogues that you think could fundamentally shift the relationship between the U.S. and China? The U.S. and China relationship is not going to fundamentally shift. Mm-hmm. I think the best we can hope for is managed competition. And the one good thing, the most important thing maybe that came out of the San Francisco meeting between Xi and Biden was that while while China continues to publicly 
pushback on this narrative of competition as the paradigm for the relationship, C seems to have implicitly endorsed it, recognize now that we are in a competitive paradigm, mm-hmm. but that competition doesn't have to mean conflict and that we can responsibly manage that competition. And that is hopefully why we saw China commit to restart military to military dialogues. And we'll look to see those implemented over the course of the next year. But there there are going to be landmines that we'll have to avoid, and it's going to last potentially for decades. Um, this is This is the new way that the relationship, not just with the U.S. and China works, but with China and a whole lot of other states who evince the exact same anxieties and concerns that the U.S. does. It's interesting because you talk about competition, but, you know, if both powers actually cooperate together, we could really move things fundamentally. I mean, look at the recent climate talks. Really, you saw language about the transition away from fuel as a result of both U.S. and China actually jointly agreeing to work together on this really important topic. So I wonder if actually if there is some shift in saying, oh, let's just work together on some of these biggest issues, you could solve many problems, actually. I wish. <laughs> the, you know, the U.S. has, since the Obama administration, sought to separate cooperative from competitive issues in the U.S.-China relationship. Mm-hmm. So particularly on climate change, also on global health, um, on digital standards, digital privacy, and things like that. And we've had very little success because Beijing's position has consistently been that, no, you have to take the relationship as a whole, and we won't we won't work with the U.S. on some things and compete on others. Like I said, hopefully San Francisco and the aftermath begin to shift that paradigm. And China recognizes, much like the U.S. and the Soviets did at the height of the Cold War, we always cooperated on issues of shared concerns. We cooperated on non-proliferation. We cooperated on arms control. We cooperated on the establishment of UNCLOS. We were both there to negotiate the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, despite it being the worst days of the Cold War. Competition doesn't have to mean that you can't cooperate where your interests align. The US-China competition is relatively new, relatively young, but I hope that we are moving in that direction where we can recognize that we won't agree on everything. We will compete on some areas, but we can continue to cooperate where both of our interests are well served. That was Greg Pauling from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. News Bulletin, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.